Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses." Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. You can read that in the Psalms. Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation." Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. My message comes from a phrase in verse number 40, where Peter says to this group of people, save yourselves from this untoward generation. What I want to speak to you this morning is salvation from an untoward generation. Generation, Would you join me, bow your heads, as we ask the Lord to bless this time together this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the name of Jesus. According to your word, it's the name that is above every name. It's the name that we ought all to bow. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. What a wonderful name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Lord, this first sermon that Peter preached is full of gospel truth. And I pray, Father, that you would bless and help and open up hearts. And Lord, 3,000 people were added to them. 3,000 people accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Lord, we know that that's definitely not likely to happen as a result of me preaching this sermon today. But Lord, it would be a joy if at least one would come to you. It would be a joy if you would touch hearts and draw men and speak to our hearts and help us. And we certainly invite your presence. We need your presence. Without your presence, Lord, all that we do will be vain. And so we invite you into this service 
ask that you'd bless this preaching, anoint us, enable us, give us clarity of thought and clarity of speech that we might bring glory and honor to you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. I have two introductory thoughts or actually meanings, explanations for you before we get into the gist of the message here this morning. And the first meaning is the word untoward. It's not a common word that we use today, although pretty much any dictionary that you pick up, regardless of whether it dates back to 1828 or 2024, you're going to find this English word in the dictionary. The word only appears one time in the entire Bible, and it's right here in this text. The meaning of the word untoward means to be froward or perverse, rebellious, not easily taught, marked by trouble and unhappiness. Anyone here honest? Do we have any honest people in the congregation here today? I hope we have some honest people. Wouldn't you honest people agree with me that we are living in an untoward generation right here and right now? Not only this time period, but this geographic location, our entire nation has become a very untoward generation, froward, perverse, rebellious, not easily taught, and as a result of that, marked by trouble and unhappiness. Dysfunction has become the norm among not just the average person, but the majority of people that are living today. The word untoward would be the opposite of toward. When we talk about I'm going toward that door, that means that I'm facing it. That's the direction that I'm going. And so obviously, untoward means that you're facing or going the opposite direction that you ought to be going. The second term that I want to give explanation to here this morning is the term save yourselves. Peter says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. This concept needs to be evaluated very carefully. Why? Because Peter is not telling them that they have the means to save themselves. But rather, he's telling them that they have the means to respond to the message in order to be saved. You see, Jesus is the only one that can save you. And when Peter says, save yourselves, what he's saying is you need to respond to this message. It's kind of like hypothetically speaking. Let's say that someone that you knew and trusted had a battle with cancer. And they went to a particular clinic that claimed to have the cure for cancer. And they went to that clinic and lo and behold, they were cured of their cancer. And so they find out that you just got diagnosed with cancer. And so they start telling you, you know, if somebody got cured from cancer, they'd be pretty excited about it. They wouldn't say, well, you know, this is just a very private thing that I, I like to keep. I don't like to talk about these things with people. No, they're not going to be that way. They're going to be, it's just they're going to be blabbing it to anybody that they can. It's like, well, I thought I was going to die. My doctor told me that I only had a month to live and I went to this clinic and they totally cured me. 
And I didn't have to go through chemotherapy and radiation and all of that. It was just a simple treatment. and I'm cured. I'm healthy as can be. It's gone. It's never coming back. You're going to be excited about that. And let's say, let's say that you listen to this trusted friend and, wow, I've got cancer. This clinic cured them. And then, lo and behold, you happen to be reading the newspaper and there's an ad for this clinic claiming that they can do it. What do you think you're going to do? You're going to go to the clinic. And you know what? If you did that and they cured you of that cancer, you, you could say you saved yourself from cancer. How did you save yourself? By going to the clinic. The clinic is the one that did the curing that did the saving, but you at least had the faith to take that step and to trust your friend and to trust that ad and go and see, and lo and behold, the clinic would be doing the, the curing. That's what Peter's saying when he says to these thousands of people listening, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, many of you are probably familiar with Acts 2.38, if you've been saved for any length of time. And, you know, I, have, I really almost am ashamed of myself in this respect. I, uh, I believe that preachers need to be able to have answers from the Bible. And I believe that there are passages in the Bible that are often misunderstood, and sometimes if you don't know the Bible and don't know how to rightly divide it, it's easy to read a passage of Scripture and draw the wrong conclusions. Acts 2.38 is certainly, I don't know if it's at the top of the list, but it certainly belongs in the top 10 of verses in the Bible that have often been misunderstood and misapplied. And so I've spent so much of my ministry explaining what Acts 2 is not, that I've failed to realize this is the first gospel sermon. There's some good stuff in here. There's some stuff that I oughtn't get all choked up about what Acts 2.38 is not saying, that I fail to realize that the stuff that it is saying is really, really good. As I've said, it's the first gospel preaching to a congregation that, every, that ever takes place. And I find in this sermon, in what we just read together, I find every element in the process of salvation is clearly found in this text. If you want to save yourself from this untoward generation then you've got answers right here in what we just read. Number one, the gospel. In verses 31 through verse number 36, we'll not take the time to read it again, but you see here clearly, clearly it talks about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Verse 31, he saying this before spake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross and he was buried. 
but he rose again the third day. This is the message of the gospel. It is the good news. Would you hold your place here in Acts and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15? Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Easy to find. But hold your place. We're going to be coming back to Acts chapter number 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse number 1, Paul says this, and, and listen carefully. He says, moreover, brethren. In other words, what I have to say now is more important than anything that I've already said. And he said some pretty important things. Moreover, brethren... I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. Paul's making it clear. If you want to be saved, you're going to be saved by the gospel. The gospel is a message. It's good news. That's what the word means. And so Paul's saying, more importantly, I want to declare to you this good news because this is what saved you. This is where you need to be standing. And he says in verse number three, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to to the scriptures. He adds according to the scriptures twice there. Why? Because it is more important than taking the word of other people. There were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of them. Many of the apostles, he was seen of many, over 500 at one time. Without question, that would hold up in any court of law. But Paul is clear to say that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is the message that saves. Anyone who's ever been saved, it was because of that universal message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know that there are people who are part of churches that preach that, that are not saved? because they put their faith and trust in something they did or they're putting their trust in their church or their religion. And likewise, they, you know that there are religions that according to the Bible, I would categorize them as a false religion. I mean, religions who preach and teach that you have to do religious works in order to be saved. Uh, religions that have all kinds of things that are false doctrine. But you know that there are some people within those churches that actually get born again because that church, while they may be really messed up in their doctrinal understanding of the Bible, if they are saying anything about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins and being buried and raising and being resurrected the third day, if that message is present, then God can do some saving. Because that's all that matters when it's all said and done. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is totally dependent on what Jesus did for us. And so the question, if you look back in Acts chapter number 2, and verse number 38 says, repent and be baptized. What about baptism? There are religions out there. Christian, I mean, churches and religions that believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
but they will misapply this verse and say, well, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. What about it? What about baptism? Can I say this morning that the answer to that question is actually crystal clear? It is. If you believe the entire Bible and you're not going to take any man or any organization, uh, take their word for it, and you're going to take the Bible as a whole for your interpretation and your understanding, the answer's crystal clear. In this text, I have no doubt in my mind that Peter is not insinuating that anyone must be baptized in order to be saved. No more than we will say at the end of this sermon when we have an invitation, oftentimes I'll say every head bowed and every eye closed. The music will be playing and I'll say, look, if you would like to be saved, why don't you slip out of your seat and come on down to the altar and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? In no way would I be insinuating that getting out of your pew or coming to this altar saves you. I would be making it clear that asking Jesus Christ to be your Savior is what does the saving. It's just part of the process. And in Bible days, that repent and be baptized, that was just connected. It was connected to the gospel message. That's what the apostles had been preaching. The same thing that John the Baptist had been preaching. The only thing different with this message is John the Baptist did not preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He preached about the first coming. But Peter is giving the gospel message. Peter had no, he, he was not implying at all that those 3,000 souls had to be baptized in order to get the remission of their sins. How do you, are you sure of that preacher? Do you know that? Well, in Acts chapter number three, Peter's doing the same thing, preaching to a bunch, thousands of people. And you, I'll show you at the end of this sermon that Peter tells him, you need to repent. And he says absolutely nothing about baptism. Now, if baptism was necessary for salvation, I would say Peter did a pretty lousy job in what he told them to do. Wouldn't you agree? And so you've got to take the Bible as a whole. 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 17. Paul says this, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. You know, it's almost sickening what passes for gospel preaching and evangelism in our lifetime. Most of it is emotional manipulation. Most of it is psychological manipulation. I mean, people, you know, in their preaching service, they create an emotional effect and they create a, a wave of momentum. And a lot of people respond because of that emotional momentum and they come down to the altar or they fill out a card, they say a prayer, and they still have no clue what they're doing. They're just going along with what everybody else is doing. Even, and I believe in personal evangelism, even in personal evangelism, it's been relegated to one, two, three, repeat after me, now you're on your way to heaven. You know, if you study, I am not minimizing the fact that when we get saved, we're on our way to heaven. 
You know, Jesus even said that was important. When he spoke to Nicodemus, he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You'll not get to heaven without being born again. And there are times where Jesus warned the people about the dangers of hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. When Jesus told that story, and it was a story, not a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there was a absolutely factual principle that if you believe and trust the word of God, then you'll go to paradise, Abraham's bosom. But if you reject it, then you're going to end up in hell and torments like that rich man was. Jesus is making it clear that the decision that we make here is going to have an effect of where we end up after we breathe our last breath on this life. But nowhere do you find anywhere in the scripture where any of the apostles preached and said, hey, how many of you want to go to heaven? Oh, sure, sounds great. How many of you want to not go to hell? Okay, people raise their hand. Okay, well then why don't you just pray this prayer and repeat after me? You don't find any example of that. Paul said, I'm not preaching with wisdom of words, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that when it becomes personal to you, when you understand what Jesus did and why he did it and how he did that for you and how you absolutely needed him to do that for you, that's when salvation actually takes place. Romans 1, verse number 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He didn't say baptism is the power of God to salvation. He said the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what does the saving. You know, religious pride is so universal. Most Baptists have the right argument when it comes to the baptism for salvation fallacy. But how many Baptists have taken baptism and just replaced it for some kind of magical sinner's prayer? What's, what's the sinner's prayer? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so much of their evangelism is just simply saying, well, if you'd like to go to heaven, if you'll say the sinner's prayer, and then they walk away, well, you know what? We don't, it's not our business whether they got saved or not. That's true. God does the saving, but it's our business to make sure that we don't deceive people with a false hope. Oh, you said the sinner's prayer, so now you're on your way to heaven. When God does the saving, you're going to know that something happened. It's the Holy Spirit that comes in. Baptism is a wonderful thing, by the way. I'm not preaching against baptism. It's a wonderful thing. It publicly identifies and demonstrates a decision to identify with Jesus Christ. And just like Peter told them, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It demonstrates a cleansing that has taken place. But listen, the baptism doesn't do the cleansing any more than a burial at a cemetery makes somebody dead. They already were dead. It just demonstrates that they're gone, and so we put them 
in the ground. That's all that baptism is, and I believe that that's all that Peter had in mind. It was just something that they did, that we're supposed to do, but never, never did Peter. This is not a dispensational, this isn't a different church and a different message. Peter clarifies that in Acts chapter number 11. He says that God gave them the same gift as he did us. The Bible says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one body. I'm a dispensationalist. I'm just not a hyper-dispensationalist. I believe in dividing this book. I don't believe in chopping it up, folks. So baptism is a wonderful thing, but it is not necessary for salvation. And Peter didn't even believe that here in Acts 2 and verse number 38. And so the first element... If you want to save yourself from this untoward generation is you've got to have the gospel message. Number two, number two, you've got to have conviction. Now, I didn't know about conviction when I was growing up in Idaho. I was around the gospel. The churches that I grew up in had a lot of gospel, a lot of Jesus died for you, and if you want to be saved, then you've got to believe in him. God had a lot of John 3.16 growing up. But when I got right with the Lord and I got around some, I guess they call it Holy Ghost preaching, I, I guess I wasn't around that very forceful, and it was powerful, a lot of that preaching. I, I had never heard of anybody, I'd never seen anybody who got under such deep conviction that, they, I mean, they came running forward to the altar, almost yelling or screaming or tears running down their, their cheeks and came down and just wept and prayed, oh God, save me. Now you could read about it in Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what happened to them. They were literally weeping and their testimonies after they heard that message is they literally felt like that they were dangling from a thread over the pits of hell and all God had to do was just let them loose. That's how they felt. Why do you suppose they felt that way? It wasn't because of the persona of Jonathan Edwards. History tells us that he had a sermon and he basically just stood in front of them and in a monotone voice read that sermon. You know what caused that emotional response? Conviction. The root word of conviction is convince. Listen, the preacher, the preacher, i.e. I, if I'm the one that's the preacher right now, can try to convince your mind. There's nothing wrong with that. God says, come now, let us reason together. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. The preacher can try to convince your mind, but only God only the Holy Spirit can convince your heart. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 17. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, that's Peter, by the way, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The question that Jesus had asked, who do you think that I am? And Simon Peter said, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God. He had it right. And Jesus knew and understood that Peter didn't figure this out on his own. 
but rather the Holy Spirit of God. God revealed it unto Peter. It's a spiritual truth. Now, Stephen preached in Acts chapter number 7, and while the people here in Acts chapter number 2, it says right here in verse 37, it says they were pricked in their heart. Pricked in their heart. That's conviction. They weren't analyzing Peter's sermon as to how eloquent he was. This wasn't a sermon that they listened to, and as they're leaving and heading to their chariot and driving home, it's like, oh dear, boy, Peter really, he really knocked it out of the ballpark today, didn't he? Remember that story that he told? Oh, that was so moving, that was so touching. No, it was none of that. It wasn't any, I'm sure there was probably some people that were thinking about what Peter preached and it's like, I can't wait to get home and sit at my dinner table and have some roast Peter. <laughs> I can't believe he said, how dare him. I'm sure that that might have went on in somebody's heart, but there were at least 3,000 people that were listening to Peter who were pricked in the heart. When Stephen preached in Acts chapter number 7, it says they were cut to the heart. 3,000 people got saved at Peter's preaching. Just not many days later, a few months later, Stephen's preaching. They're cut to the heart and they gnashed upon him with the teeth. They gnashed and it's just like, yeah, we, can't, we hate you. Can't believe you said it. And they all took up stones and they literally stoned the gospel preacher to death just for telling them that Jesus was their Messiah and they blew it by crucifying him. Stephen gave him their whole history. He wasn't mean-spirited about it at all. He just told them the truth. And it says they, they, they couldn't resist his spirit and his wisdom. I guarantee you that many of them were wanting to, oh, this guy, I just don't want to listen to this. They wanted to just get out of there but Stephen had so much of God's power on him because he had a testimony. He was a man of faith and they couldn't resist it. But when the, when the invitation was given, they didn't want anything to do with it. You know what? I, I don't, honest, I don't want y'all to throw anything at me. Not songbooks, certainly not rocks. I don't want anything bad to happen to, me, happen to me because I preach this, all right? But I'll tell you what is the most disappointing thing to a preacher is when nothing happens. If I had to choose, if I preached the truth to you and the Holy Spirit said to you what you really need to hear through that sermon, even if you hated me, even if you despised me, I would rather have that than for you to sit there like, oh well, when's it gonna be over? Thank God for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. I remember, I remember the years from high school up till 19, almost 20 years old, I remember the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. I remember the guilt. I remember getting home after being out with my buddies and all the things that I'd done. I remember laying it on my bed and just it, uh, the conviction and the guilt. It's like, oh Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I remember in 1984 when the Holy Spirit showed up 
in my life and in my heart and just the only way I know to describe it, it's like the Holy Spirit took my words and just smacked me in the face and said, what about you, buddy? And it shook me, literally. My knees, I don't think it was quite like Belshazzar, but my legs and my knees were literally shaking. That was the power of the Holy Spirit. I wasn't looking for it, but thank God he came looking for me. Sometimes, oh, by the way, Jesus said in John 6, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God has to draw you. God doesn't necessarily do this arbitrarily as some men claim. You know, we find it demonstrated in the New Testament on many occasions that sometimes God draws men who are already seeking and searching for him. Listen, I know from the scripture that man is depraved, but there's a belief out there that says that man is so totally depraved that he can't seek, he can't search, he can't believe. Then why is God saying and telling us to search, to believe? Why is God saying all of that? Is he just playing head games with us? I don't think so. I believe that just like Cornelius, Cornelius didn't know the gospel, but he had a heart that was seeking God. He's giving alms and he's trying to do right. And he's seeking for God with all of his heart and responding to the light that God had given him and God just continued to give him more light. Sometimes God will show up in your life when you're not seeking But sometimes he'll show up because he knows the thoughts of your heart. And sometimes, even if we don't cry out audibly, we've got something inside of us and we're hurting. And we're in our thoughts, we're like, oh, somebody help me. Oh God, would you just help me? God, I I don't even know what to ask for. I don't know the answer. And sometimes God looks down and he hears those cries, even though we're not even praying it formally. And he sends a message or a messenger, or something to give us the light that we need. I Listen, I resisted conviction, but I never fully rejected it. And God just continued to give it for nearly two years of my life. And thank God, by his grace, he didn't give up on me. But I gotta say to you this morning, if God is drawing you, if he's convicting you, you have no guarantee that he'll do the same thing tomorrow if you reject him, if you resist him. I highly recommend that you respond like these folks did in Acts chapter number two. The third thing is repentance. Verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you. Conviction is an awakening of the conscience whereas repentance is our response to that conviction The Holy Spirit, the gospel message, the truth is convincing us. And when we respond to that light, then that is certainly repentance. Our text, as we've seen, speaks of an untoward generation. It's the direction that everyone was facing, everyone was following. Repentance was when they turned toward God. They went from being an untoward people, 3,000 of them became a toward people because they turned toward God. 
What is repentance? It's not complicated. God, you are right. God, I am wrong. I'm taking your side against me. It's not complicated. The devil is such a master at taking the essential elements of salvation and corrupting and perverting them. He'll take the concept of faith and he'll try to turn it into easy believism. He'll take the concept of repentance and try to make it into works or self-help. Oh, well, you gotta, you got to turn yourself around before God will... No, you just have to turn toward him and he'll do the saving. Repentance has nothing to do with works. And anybody who thinks that preaching repentance is preaching a message of works, they don't understand repentance at all. How about the term grace? Hey, I'm saved by grace, and it's amazing. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But that grace doesn't give me a license to just live however I want. That's not what the grace of God does. The devil will just take and corrupt and pervert everything. In conclusion, the last element, number four, is conversion. Look at it with me once again in verse number 41. It says, then they that gladly received the word, that's where they got saved right there. They gladly received the word, they were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them Added unto who? The disciples, the believers, the followers of Jesus, the ones that weren't part of the untoward generation. Listen, that conversion is that God took them from one group of people and put them over here with a different group of people. God took them from one nature, so to speak, and converted them into something very different. The Bible talks about it as a new creature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Those who gladly received the gospel are no longer part of that untoward generation. They have a different life. They have a different purpose. They have a different crowd. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon about Peter's second sermon in Acts 3.19. And here's a portion of it here on your screen. He said, repent ye therefore and be converted. He doesn't mention baptism because he never was saying that baptism was the essential part. Repent ye therefore and be converted. Why? That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. He says in verse 26, unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. I wonder what Joel in Houston would do with that term. Oh, he sent you to bless, to bless you. You know what the blessing of God is here? Not, it, not your finances, not your health. The blessing of God is that he turns you away from your iniquities. He shows you that he's righteous and holy and that you're wicked and sinful. And he says, if you'll believe my gospel, if you'll repent, I will cleanse you of your sins. I'll convert you into something. You'll become a child of God. 
That's what salvation is all about. You know, salvation never speaks of your destiny first without first speaking of your sin. If you are saved here today, you didn't just get in line to get your free ticket to heaven that the preacher offered. Oh, if you'll come down here, you'll get your ticket to heaven. No, if you've been saved, you have come to the Lord believing in the cross of Calvary because you know your sin has caused a division. God and you are at enmity because of your sin and you want his forgiveness. You want to make peace with him. That's the essential element of salvation. And I believe that churches in America are filled with people who would answer the test correctly. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. Yes, I prayed and asked him to save me. But they never did it based on conviction, repentance, and conversion. They never dealt with it based on their sin and their need for a savior. You get diagnosed with cancer and you start feeling sick and you start realizing this is my death sentence. I am under the condemnation of this cancer. You're gonna go and you're gonna try to get that cure and it's gonna be dynamic. It's gonna be life changing if that actually happens in your life and it's the same way with salvation. I'm not trying to complicate it here today. I'm trying to simplify it with the truth and not the perverted, corrupt form that is being preached all across this country this very morning. So we have number one, the gospel, number two, conviction, number three, repentance, which listen, faith and repentance really are just joined together. When you repent and you turn to God, it's because you trust in him and you're believing Repentance really is an outward demonstration or even an inward demonstration that what you say you believe, you really believe. It's not a casual belief in the head. It's from the heart. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. That's not just that positional righteousness. It's a change in your life. And so I ask these two questions as we close. Would you like to save yourself from this untoward generation? The whole world around us is like that city of destruction that John Bunyan wrote about in Pilgrim's Progress. And if you want to save yourself, you're going to have to flee from it. And you're going to have to flee to Jesus Christ. Would you like to gladly receive the Lord today? I'm not going to try to talk you into it. I presented it as clear as Peter did. Peter didn't give a lengthy, drawn-out invitation. He simply told him, look, you're sinners. You need to repent, and you need to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit pricked him in the heart. Is God speaking to your heart here today? Then I highly recommend that you gladly receive him and do business with him before you leave this place today.